welcome to Happened Here. People, places, and the stories they tell. I'm Neil Fleming, host of this episode, Across the Centuries. We've got three stories which stretch across centuries for you in this episode. We've got a link between a 19th century black Shakespearean actor and a 20th century actor and singer. We've got a story about an 18th century composer and his link with a 1960s guitarist. And we're going to consider the haunting legacy a murder can leave behind. Without further ado, let's begin. The Savoy Theatre, the Strand, and the Theatre Royal, Covent Garden. The Golden Earrings. Written by Milo Harries. Performed by Stephen Fry. The Moor, I know his trumpet. It is truly so. Let's meet him and receive him. Lo, where he comes! The metal was warm, closed in the cup of her hand. Amanda walked crisply down the Strand towards the Savoy Theatre. Like generations of teachers, she was going to see an old student in a play, and like the better ones, she was bringing a gift. This wasn't as simple as teacher and pupil. Her student, Paul, wasn't singing, the skill he had studied with her. He was acting. Paul would be the first black actor to play Othello in London, for a hundred years. Her 64-year-old mind roved between the past and present, a fabulous coincidence flashing like the gold between her fingers. In March 1833, a hundred years before, a different Othello had opened at the Theatre Royal Covent Garden. Acting star Edmund Keane played the customary blackface Othello. One night, Keane collapsed on stage. All eyes turned to his replacement, a black American actor named Ira Aldridge. This was not the first time Aldridge had played Othello, nor was it his first performance in London, but this was the Theatre Royal Covent Garden, England's longest-standing playhouse. Here you could make or break your reputation. Even before Aldridge's performance, racist pamphlets were distributed calling for the play to be cancelled. Nevertheless, the audience for Aldridge's first night was delighted, showering him with applause. But the next day, while some newspapers applauded his acting, many concentrated on his colour. The Athenaeum was appalled that a black man could act opposite a white Desdemona, the Times made furiously clear that Aldridge did not belong in Covent Garden, and Gilbert Abbott Beckett in The Figaro in London was threatening, unless this notice causes the immediate withdrawal of his name from the bills, we must drive him from the stage he has dishonoured and force him to find in the capacity of footman or street sweeper that level for which his colour appears to have rendered him peculiarly qualified. The racist vitriol did its work. Positive reviews were lost in the uproar, and after two performances, the run closed. 
Aldridge, undeterred, played on in other London theatres and on provincial tours. Later, he moved to the continent and made a highly successful career, having accolades bestowed upon him by several European rulers. Ira Aldridge continued to play Othello. But it was nearly 100 years later before Paul Robeson was to be the next black actor to play Othello in London, performing in what he called a tragedy of racial conflict. Robeson, who became a prominent activist for black people's rights, was already an international star two years following his performance in Showboat, also at Covent Garden's Theatre Royal. He was best known, perhaps, for singing Old Man River. And Amanda, who had been a singing teacher to a young Paul Robeson, was there for his first night as Othello at the Savoy Theatre. Robeson's performance, like Aldridge's, was later reviewed through a narrowly racial lens. But like Aldridge, he was hailed by the audience, who brought him back for 20 curtain calls. Amanda was on her feet, clapping, cheering, crying for all of them. Her gift for the star? A pair of gold earrings that her father had worn when he had played the role. Amanda Aldridge, Ira's daughter. Oh, my fair warrior. My dear Othello. It gives me wonder, great as my content to see you here before me. Oh, my soul's joy. If after every tempest comes such calms, may the winds blow till they have wakened death. And the Two performances and a memorable gift across time. Our next story connects two more great artists, this time through place and music. The story starts, with just a little poetic license, as two aptly named imaginary fans spot one of the gods of rock just round the corner from his flat in a legendary 1960s record shop, a shop from which, we know, he expanded his own record collection. 40 South Molson Street and 23 and 25 Brook Street, Mayfair. It's the Messiah. Written by James Rampton, performed by Neil Fleming. It is the summer of 1968, and Jules and Jim, young rock fans, clad in brocaded Afghan coats, can scarcely believe their luck. Rifling through the racks at the one-stop record shop in South Bolton Street is none other than their idol, the guitar god, Jimi Hendrix. Despite the heat outside, the American rock legend is sporting his trademark outfit, a black felt Homburg hat and a giddying patchwork coat, constructed from squares of green, rust, blue, camel, pink and black suede, with an exquisite fuchsia lining. What's he looking for? whispers Jim. Probably the latest by traffic or canned heat, Jules replies authoritatively. The pair rush over to Hendricks. 
Once in front of their hero, incapable of mustering a coherent sentence, they point inarticulately at him and blurt out, "'It's the Messiah!' Hendricks raises a quizzical eyebrow as he holds up the album he has just selected. Handel's Messiah. "'Golly,' says Jules, "'I wasn't expecting that.' "'Let me explain.' Hendricks had just moved into a flat round the corner from the record store and had discovered that another renowned musician, one George Frederick Handel, had lived next door. German-born Handel, composer and organist, moved to the then newly built 25 Brook Street in 1723, where he stayed composing, rehearsing and even sometimes performing in the house for the remaining 36 years of his life. He composed his messiah there. Hendricks was checking out the competition. Back in his bedroom in the upstairs flat at 23 Brook Street, Hendricks puts his new purchase on the state-of-the-art Bang & Olufsen turntable. And while we're on the subject, Hendricks used to adore playing his LPs at a ridiculously high volume. He had to tape a coin to the turntable arm to prevent it from leaping around as he turned the dial up to eleven. Instantly transfixed by the beauty of Handel's timeless oratorio coming out of his two thirty-watt lather speakers, Hendricks instinctively reaches for his Fender Stratocaster and starts strumming along. The air vibrates as the axeman chops down on his strings. He embellishes Handel's ethereal melody with a mesmerising howl of wah-wah and feedback. With every shuddering chord, he is redrawing the definition of guitar sound, transforming forever the tones that emanate from his instrument, a magician conjuring sounds from the depths of the soul. In a supernatural echo, a contemporary of Handel's wrote of his playing, Whilst Mr. Handel was playing his part, I could not help thinking him a necromancer in the midst of his enchantments. Handel and Hendricks, sorcerers both. Strengthening the link between them, Hendricks even claimed to have seen Handel's ghost in the house. The homes of these two very different but equally breathtaking musical geniuses have been turned into a museum the Handel and Hendricks house. The musicians' rooms have been lovingly restored and provide intriguing insights into their lives. Hendricks's bedroom, for instance, is just as he left it, complete with ashtrays brimming with cigarette butts, period copies of the TV Times, a vintage guitar and, yes, that Homburg hat lying on the bed. The rock star was so domesticated in his Mayfair flat that at the weekend he loved nothing more than popping out to John Lewis on Oxford Street to check out their new carpets and curtains. Very rock and roll. Hendrix's record collection is still sitting there in his bedroom, too. It features classic albums such as Bob Dylan's Highway 61 Revisited and Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band by the Beatles. It also contains not one, but two copies of Handel's Messiah.
Apparently, there's blood on some of Hendrix's record collection. A wine glass shattered and blood was spilt. And speaking of blood, we're changing the mood of Across the Centuries now to consider an act of violence that has reverberated across time. Maiden Lane, at the stage door, at the back of Theatre Royal, Covent Garden. A hundred and ninety-three steps. Written by Robbie Stamp, performed by Kate Reed. The dead of night, and she wakes from that dream again, distressed and panicking. The man she loves, trapped in a room from which he cannot escape, calling her name in fear and mounting desperation, and she helpless to do anything about it. In that haunted space between dreaming and waking, she can still hear his cries, his pet name for her, Sis, Sis, Sis. A few days later, on December 16th, 1897, just before seven in the evening and in the near freezing cold, in a dark doorway on Maiden Lane in Covent Garden, Richard Arthur Price, a bit-part actor, consumed, almost mad now, with a poisonous brew of envy, dependency and resentment, having argued with him earlier in the day, clasps and unclasps his hand around the knife in his pocket and waits. The handsome actor, William Terrace, aged 50, one of the most celebrated players of his day, arrives at the stage door of the Adelphi Theatre. Price steps out of the shadows, rushes at Terrace, stabs him twice in the back, and when Terrace turns to face his assailant, stabs him again in the chest. Terrace is carried off the street and into his dressing room. Two doctors from nearby Charing Cross Hospital are called, but nothing can be done. The wounds are mortal blows, and Terrace cradled in the arms of his mistress, Jessie Millwood, his leading lady, dies. His last words, Sis, sis, sis. Later at home, by candlelight, Jessie stares at the crusted, rusty red remnants of his blood on her own hands and remembers with a lurch. Only a few weeks before, she had asked William to visit a palm reader, he had roared with laughter, decidedly unconvinced, but he loved her, and he agreed. On emerging from crossing the palm with silver, he had declared to Jessie, I've got quite a nice character, Jessie, so nice, in fact, that it seems a pity that I'm booked for a sudden death. I'm very clever, I've got a kind heart, and I'm coming to a violent end. Jessie collapses on her bed, convulsed in tears, and finally sleeps the sleep of exhausted grief. The dream does not come again. Maybe it is no surprise that Terrace's troubled spirit is still said to walk the streets of Covent Garden, visiting old haunts across these hundred and more years. Inside the theatre, even now, an actor about to go on stage will occasionally hear two knocks on the wall where once there was a dressing room door. 
Jessica Millward's door. Terrace had always knocked twice to wish her luck. People see unexplained lights and shapes backstage, hear footsteps in the dark, the sound of a heavy coat brushing against the velvet backs of the seats. Terrace has been spotted in Maiden Lane, and some say he haunts Covent Garden Tube Station, built on the site of a bakery he may have frequented. Were you to take the last train home and decide to climb the 193 steps up from the platform, a lone passenger in the demi-light, maybe you too would see a distinguished man in late Victorian garb pass you by, paying you no heed. Maybe the panicked words, sis, 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 would haunt your dreams that night. Theatres and ghosts, famous creatives, links across the centuries. It happened here, people, places and the stories they tell. I'm Kate, and I performed the Terrace Ghost Story. Let me tell you, I will never look at Covent Garden Tube Station quite the same way again. If you'd like to delve deeper, come and find out more at happenedhere.com. Hi, Robbie Stamp here. I'm just here to let you know that we're doing our first ever recorded live Happened Here podcast at the Chalk Valley Farm History Festival, where we'll be appearing on June the 29th. So look out for that special episode next. If you enjoyed this episode, please share, tell your friends, and leave us a kind review and a rating on your podcast platform of choice. But for now, everybody involved in Happened Here, the writers, the hosts, the performers, we all thank you for listening. Do come again. We've got lots more stories to tell.